Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome to Genuine Humans podcast. And Wendy, my co-host is here. And Wendy, you've just got back from holiday. How was it? It was so lovely. We had a week in Lisbon, followed by a week on the, the Silver Coast in Portugal. So it was like having two holidays. So I'm feeling very refreshed and relaxed and happy to be back. Fabulous. Well, we had a, a heat wave while you were off. So, so. It was cooler where I was. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also, this is going to be like a little segue to our guests, but because it was the heat wave, I felt like it was a very good reason for me to eat lots and lots of little moons from the freezer. And I'm delighted that we are being joined today by Ross Farquhar, the marketing director at Little Moons. So welcome, Ross. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here and delighted that you were uh, enjoying our products. That's completely <laughs> music to my ears. I can't quite decide if I like the strawberry and cream or the, I think it's mango and passion fruit. But um, so I'm now doing A-B testing on both <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> please do. Please do. I'd also recommend pistachio. I am team pistachio to the end. <laughs> Lovely. So I'd love to hear more about what you're doing at Little Moons, but I'm going to start a little bit further back because what I would love to find out is how do you get to where you are now? So would you mind taking us through the sort of story of your early career? Of course. So I'm always so privileged to be able to talk about this. I hope it is useful to some people. Um, so yeah, so I, I started my career about, gosh, 17 years ago. I started at Cadbury on their, their graduate program back when Cadbury still existed uh, as a company. And I started there because I, I finished uni or was coming up to finishing uni. And honestly, my criteria for who to apply for were companies that I thought my mum would know and be proud of me for working at, <laughs> which I suppose is a sort of weird proxy for being attracted to consumer brands in a way, because obviously you don't tend to go into B2B businesses when uh, when that's your proxy. And, and I guess it was kind of, I just, I was drawn to the the Diageo's and Unilever's and P&G's and, and ultimately Cadbury's of this world. And, and as so often the case, I didn't realise at the time, but now with hindsight, how special a business Cadbury was and how lucky mm. I was to have landed there. You know, it is one of the most, or was one of the most values-led businesses, probably because of its Quaker roots. And it, and it really gave me an incredible grounding in sort of business done right for all rather than profit at all costs. So really, really privileged to work there for, for six or seven years until um, the craft takeover happened uh, very famously. And I'm sure most people listening will, will have been aware of uh, that happening in, in sort of early 2010s. First of two takeovers I've been involved in in my career and my main lesson coming out of them is both actually is you just need to work out very quickly whether you're on the bus or off the bus because mm -hmm. if you're if you're off the bus but you pretend you're on the bus you end up being quite toxic mm -hmm. to everyone around you and to yourself actually and you become quite miserable and I sort of worked out pretty quickly actually that uh, absolutely no offense to Cadbury to Kraft and what would go on to be Mondelez but I had a hold of emotion and wrapped up in Cadbury, a real love for it. And I was going to find it very difficult to move past that into the new thing. So it wasn't going to be particularly helpful for both parties. And I, and I decided to move on and was 
was very lucky to get a, uh, a job at Diageo, a business that I always wanted to work for as well. And I'd seen lots of people going between the two. So it it felt like they were kind of um, sympathetic to, to one another in terms of being values led, but also seeing brands as a real driver of, of business. And I have no doubt that I would have stayed there for many, many years had I not been offered an incredible sort of once in a lifetime opportunity very early days into my career there. So I, I was actually approached about joining a startup agency called 101 that was being founded by the ex-founders of Fallon, who were the agency that made Cadbury Gorilla and various other things, and my ex-marketing director at Cadbury, Phil Rumble. So he he offered me a job at about the sort of two-month point of my career at Diageo. And it was incredibly hard to say bye to Diageo at that point, because honestly, I couldn't believe that I would ever be leaving that business, but I'd only just got there and I really, really loved it. But I also quickly sort of worked out I would regret not taking that opportunity to join a startup agency with such incredible people um, for the rest of my life if I didn't do it. So I, I jumped and I spent seven wonderful years at 101. I got to work with so many hugely smart and interesting people, both within 101 and the clients that I got to work with, got exposure to all these different industries that I would never have gotten exposure to from the big sort of blue chip FMCG world that I, I was in. And then I went through the second takeover of, of my life that I mentioned when 101 was absorbed into Mullen Low Group. And again, no, nothing but positive things to say about Mullen Low Group. And in fact, they're, they're one of my agency partners now. But they, um, but again, I just worked out it wasn't quite right for me as an yeah. ex-chapter. So um, off the bus, uh, I went and went on to join Grey London, to be honest, more as a test for myself to work out whether I... I sort of suspected I couldn't, but could I thrive in a big holding company agency model and although I was only there for about a year, it was one of the most clarifying experiences of the kind of environments I thrive in and I, I really enjoy and I'm at my best at. And ultimately, you know, it's all part of the journey, so there's no regrets there. But after about a year, I, I left uh, to go and, and start a, a career with another incredible organization. I, I went to be CMO of Wagamama, which is a really, really special business, completely different category to anything I'd done before. Hospitality is fundamentally different than being a marketer in FMCG you quickly realize that the work that you do to um, motivate the thousands of people delivering service day in, day out, whether it's the chefs or the front of house team, is so much more material to whether you'll succeed or fail than the adverts you make or the placemats that you design. So so that was brilliant. But ultimately, the pandemic hit. Mm. And uh, at that point, you know, all restaurant businesses were facing an existential crisis. And, and sadly, Wagamama made the decision that I completely agree with them on, which was, they couldn't really afford a, a decently paid CMO, you know, employed to look at the 18 month plus time horizon yeah. when they're fighting for their lives in the next two months. So, so I was let go from there, but I, I quickly, well, I got the first six months of, um, of lockdown life in gardening leave, which was a thoroughly uh, odd experience. And then I, I joined Little Moons from there. And it's, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but an incredible business and one I'm, I'm delighted to be at now. I feel like we're kind of professionally stalking you, actually, because we work with Mondelez Diageo, have worked with Wagamamas at one point. And <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I'm all delighted about that. They're all brilliant businesses. I do, I do like to think there's a thread. Like, I'm often told that my career is slightly all over the place. And I think it's just because I, I really like variety. And I get sometimes a little bit bored and, and so on. So I love going and doing things that are fundamentally quite different. But there is a thread to them all. Like they're all really good values-led businesses that really care about their people and their hearts in the right place. And, but they're at the same time, they're quite 
commercially sharp and and so on. I, I kind of love businesses with that blend. I'd love to pick on that thread a little bit and maybe the broad, broaden the context even more. Um, I was fascinated by what you said about your first job choice and, and thinking about it being a brand that your mum would know and 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 be proud of you for working at. So can we go back a little bit even further and talk about your environment and experiences as, as a kid? What were you like as a kid? You know, I was thinking about this earlier. I, I think I was quite a confusing child, if I'm really <laughs> honest, because on the one hand, I was quite theatrical and I loved creative stuff. But on the other, I was very studious and actually quite introverted. And you know, my, my parents were, were both very keen that I do well academically. They are the sort of hardworking people who who absolutely were like, you know, success is getting a job for life and staying there forever, right. um, ideally in a profession that will, will see you with that sort of security. So, you know, lawyers and doctors and accountants and that kind of thing. And I remember it starting at a really early age, like my mum would read to me and then read with me every single night in an effort to make sure that my literacy was ahead of time and 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 all that kind of thing so I don't know I, I think that it was kind of an early sign for the kind of person I am now because when I think about my own makeup I I think I'm an interesting blend of rigor and instinct and, and I'm not weak nor incredibly spiky on either like I really value rigor and detail and doing the thinking and studying the evidence but I also think there's so much room for listening to your guts Mm -hmm. and just trying to be like a consumer not just a sort of trained marketer and and it's really hard to find that balance but I think it's really important to try and I think that's sort of reflected in what I was like as a kid sort of trying to manage this tension between a desire for creative output but also a desire to get good grades in the academics and and all that kind of thing. I suppose it's just making sure that your gut is well informed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's huge value in experience and all that kind of thing, but also that having an open mind to the possibility that you're you might have been informed by stuff that may or may not be relevant to that situation. You know, what I found when I was agency side in particular is you would find people who had spent their entire careers either in one business or one uh, category were really shaped by the assumptions that are prevalent in that category. Um, Whereas the people who had jumped around a little bit were, um, I don't want to say it's better or worse, they were just a bit more roundy Mm -hmm. because they'd seen different things work in different situations. And I always find that quite aspirational. It's another reason why I've jumped around a little bit because I I sort of often bring things in from my Wagamama days to inform what we're doing at Little Moons, even though they're fundamentally different categories. and I've definitely found times when, you know, I've worked on loyalty points and pensions and furniture retail. And there are things from all of those things from my agency side of time that I can apply in any walk of life that I go to next. So it also helps you to keep an open mind, I think. Yeah, definitely. And who were the people that you looked up to when you were a child? It doesn't have to be someone you knew. It could be an author or an actor or a sports person. So I think honestly the answer to that is I vividly remember looking up to my grandma when I I was a kid and and mainly because she was such a beacon of kindness and generosity she passed away when I was about nine um, but I still have so many memories firmly rooted in my brain of her despite her, her her passing relatively early in my life and I think it's why being kind is really hardwired in into me as a grown-up you know I'm constantly faced with challenging conversations and and difficult situations to manage 
but I really do try my best to start with kindness in every situation and go from there. And it's probably also why I find it quite difficult when I see people behaving in a way that isn't commensurate with that. I, I find it quite difficult to sort of mm-hmm. compute that. So yeah, my, my grandmother was, was a really big influence in, in that case. She'd, you know, always put herself out for anyone at any asking and always put other people first and that kind of thing. And I, I do think it kind of gave me a, a good sort of compass, mm-hmm. I guess, for how to navigate the world. Yeah, oh, that's lovely. And yes, I, I t- totally, totally hear what you're saying about the kindness thing. I think whatever situation you're in or or you're dealing with, I think it's never, it'll never steer you wrong. No, absolutely. I just think there are so many, you know, the commercial world in particular is a really difficult place sometimes. And, uh, you know, the most obvious example, I've had to make people redundant. I've had to make people, let people go. I myself have been made redundant in my career. So I got, got it from the other side really tough and there's loads of really emotional situations and it can be really hard to navigate those things but I do tend to think if you start with kindness it doesn't mean that it won't be painful at the mo- at that moment and all that kind of thing but in the long run you go if you can look back and go everyone was well treated in that situation you were fair and honest and considerate then you know things tend to play out reasonably well in, in the medium to long term it's a good north star isn't it mm, yeah absolutely was there a childhood dream and if so, what was it? Yeah, maybe coming back to that original point about sort of that tension between creativity and rigor. I, I, like I, my childhood dream was probably to be a WWE wrestler or a <laughs> WWF as it was. Sean of course, yeah. because, And that probably is the more theatrical bit of me coming out because I used to be obsessed with Bret the Hitman Hart. I remember bursting into tears when my mum and dad told me that the tickets we had bought for WWF one weekend, because it was coming to Glasgow and we were travelling through, somehow we'd bought tickets for the night that Bret the Hitman Heart was not performing. Uh-oh. And that was the end of the world to me. I just, yeah, childhood trauma, PTSD still to the time. <laughs> so, so I was obsessed with that, but then on the rigor bit, as I grew up a bit, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And, and honestly, that is probably the most dull dream you're ever going to hear on this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely no offence to lawyers. I have many friends who are lawyers and some of the funniest people um, you could ever hope to meet. Though I do think there's something slightly weird about dreaming of becoming <laughs> a lawyer. And, and I suspect, if I'm really honest with myself, that was probably more about me wanting to fulfil the expectations that I felt were on me rather than any real personal desire to immerse myself in the world of of law which is is for good and for bad like I I don't think expectations are necessarily a universally bad thing they've certainly given me a degree of drive um but at the same time too much expectation can can be a burden as well so uh you know it's a tricky balance so where do you think that expectation came from what what was it that your parents did so my uh my mom worked for the civil service um, for many years but she gave up work to look after me after my um grandmother passed away my dad largely worked in operational and hr roles for british telecom eventually bt and then left to become a um a consultant himself but he was you know someone who worked away a lot worked very very hard he put in a lot of effort to get me into because uh, I went to state schools, but he was all over getting me into state schools outside of my catchment area that had the you know best reputation and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I'm an only child, so there there is a certain element, you know, with love of my parents seeing it as a, a real focus mm-hmm. to um to give me every possible opportunity. It's also the first person in my family to go to university, mm-hmm. so that was that was slightly different. You know, I'm so grateful for all of that because I think they genuinely all just wanted me to have the best possible life and and the best. So it is all meant with with complete kindness. 
while at the same time, of course, there are some downsides to, to all of that expectation. At times it can feel uh, a little bit intense, but overall, I'm very, very grateful for the, the hard work ethic uh, that it gave me yeah. and the drive that I think sustained me for, um, for quite a long time. You mentioned uh, Phil before. Who are some of the other people that you've worked with over the years who've really influenced your career or your life in general? Uh, so I will talk about Phil. I'm, I'm going to talk about two to that one, but um, I should say with a caveat up front, of course, the answer to this is there are an endless list of people who've been so influential and so special to me over the career. I mean, basically anyone who I worked with at Cadbury, I've now come to realise what a special bunch of people and I'm so grateful to having had the, the exposure to them. The same at pretty much every other business that I've been in. I've been incredibly fortunate. Phil is a really important person uh, in my career. So Phil Rumble, for those who aren't familiar with him, he's the he was the marketing director of Cadbury before that. He was the marketing director of InBev. And at Cadbury, he was my boss's boss's boss. So if you can imagine, I was relatively junior and, and he, was, he was leading the whole function. He went on to be the person to hire me into 101. And again, he was the person who recommended me to Emma Woods, the CEO of Wagamama, where I got that role. So he genuinely has been very instrumental to me in my, my career. You know, he's been my biggest backer. And, and even though there have been plenty of occasions where we've driven each other nuts professionally, I mean, there was a time at 101 when we were kind of living in each other's pockets, working so closely that it was almost inevitable that we'd be driving each other crazy. He has never stopped being in my corner. And, and I think it's because that point I made earlier about kindness, he's someone who really, really gets that. And, and to give you an example that always sticks with me, one of my early memories of working with Phil, I remember I was making my first telly ad at Cadbury and for some reason, both my boss and my boss's boss were on holiday the week that the treatment came in and had to be signed off. God. So if you can picture the scene, like me, vaguely terrified junior brand manager, <laughs> who'd never made a telly ad before, who then had to schedule time with the busiest man in the company who never seemed to have time in his diary. So even just getting past his PA was a challenge. But once I'd got that time in the diary, I had to step into a one-to-one with this man to present a treatment, not really knowing what a treatment was. And so I got into this room with him. And before we even sat down, Phil just stopped and went, now Ross, and before we get started, I asked this with no expectation or judgment, but has anyone ever explained to you, you know, what, what a treatment is and where you're at in the process and what, you know, good client behavior looks like in this situation. And I sort of humbly went, no, I don't really know anything, sorry. But he was brilliant. He just sat down and then he explained before we even opened the page, just this is what a treatment is. This is where we're at. These are the challenging things about it. This is what you're buying. This is you know, all of that kind of stuff. Wow. So it was such an amazing learning moment from a man who had negative amounts of time and really could have just approached that as a, I just need to get in and out and yeah. sign this off or give this guy three or four points to take away and feedback to the agency. But he actually took the time and, and helped me and supported me. So that's genuine kindness for someone who, who really didn't have the time to give it. And so he is someone who's been really important to me and continues to be, actually. I'm, I'm really glad to still be in pretty close contact with film. And then the second person to talk about is Cheryl and Shackle, uh, the founder of the, the Marketing Academy. And I know she's been on this podcast she before. Has. So you know. We're big fans of Cheryl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she's a force of nature and she's special to me firstly because she took a punt on me to make me a scholar on the first year of the marketing academy scholarship where no one was quite sure what this thing was and i, I knew where i was at in my career but she she was brilliant to me then 
And then she's been really special to me ever since because she's always been there when I've needed her or whenever I've needed advice. And hopefully I've managed to pay back some of that with, you know, alumni commitments and supporting the academy wherever I can. But she's just the sort of person who you can pick up the phone to and talk to and she'll make time for you. And she was very pivotal in making the decision to leave Diageo after only a couple of months. She was actually the person I remember calling from a very illustrious like meeting room in in Diageo's headquarters going Cheryl and I don't know what to do what what should I do and she was the one who said to me just sounds like you can't pass up this opportunity can you it's it's just too good to miss um and she was right so um I feel very very privileged to have her phone number in my phone and know that I could ring her and and she would happily give up her time to me she's she's really quite special yeah as I said she's a, yeah such an inspirational woman now, you've talked about kindness being your, your North Star and you've talked about the other people that have supported you. How would you describe your leadership style? So, yeah, so I try to be kind, but I won't talk about that too much because we, we already have. I I would like to think that I'm quite a low ego leader. I, I take very seriously the idea that great leadership is about being in service to the people that you lead. I rarely look for personal glory, or at least I hope I don't. I spend more time thinking about how I can set up the people on the teams that I'm responsible for, for their own and for the business's success. You know, there's nothing that gives me more joy than seeing people I think are brilliant, doing brilliant things and achieving brilliant outcomes. And I kind of trust that there's karma in the world and that, you know, if I play some small part in enabling those people to do brilliant things, then good things will come to me um, as well. And that served me pretty well. Uh, since then and it was quite a big flip I mean I remember when I first managed my first person and I it was such a stressful thing and I thought I was being judged you know whether that person was going to succeed or not and oh god it was so so difficult and I actually have found just relaxing a little bit into it and seeing myself as someone who is really just there to help that person and there's only a there's a limit to how much you can do you know ultimately some people are going to thrive and some people aren't and that's not um, that's not entirely on you, but if you can set up the conditions for people to thrive and give them every opportunity to succeed, that's that's leadership done well. And then the other thing I'd say is I really subscribe to the notion of high challenge, high support. Mm. So what I mean by that is I really love having challenging conversations about content and substance and knotty problems and, uh, and working out how we're going to get from A to B when it's not entirely obvious how, how to do that enabled by a collective sense that we're all in this together and that we all believe in each other and if we ever have something negative to say about the content and what we're doing in no way um, confers a negative judgment on on the people or what have you like I, I really like those kind of cultures and I try and build them wherever I am because I think it it really builds collective resilience actually when when you're in a team that feels like you can have those tough conversations but everyone walks away feeling like a stronger collective, actually, rather than it's created any divisions or, or barriers. And a lot of that is about having respect for each other mm. and knowing that high challenge isn't just walking in and, you know, throwing shade on, on every idea that comes up and being the drain in the room or anything like that. It's it's having good behaviours around constructive build and and that kind of thing that you all live up to each other for, I think is, is really, really important. Yes, that, um, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast about the importance of uh, radical candour and, you know, the importance of feedback and how it is, it, it is a gift as well. If I could just pick up also about, because I know this is very much a shared value for, for us, for us in, in terms of sort of authentic leadership and the whole concept of, well, I suppose the importance in the industry of being out and proud. And I'd love it if you wouldn't mind sort of sharing 
why it matters to you and perhaps the impact it's had. Absolutely. Thank you for asking me about this. I've never really talked about this uh, anywhere else, you know, why would a bit, but I was really keen to talk about it a little bit because I, I came out relatively later in life. It was actually in my early 30s um, when I was at 101. And it was a hugely pivotal moment for me, not only personally, but professionally. And I suspect a lot of LGBTQ plus people in our industry might be able to relate to my experience because it seems to be a fairly common experience amongst our community, or at least the people I I talk to. Before I came out and while I was working out who I I really was, I was pretty relentless academically and professionally. You know, I was so ambitious at school and then at uni. and I judged myself really harshly if I wasn't getting top grades or I was in the top set. And then when I started my career at Cadbury, I was working long, long hours and I was desperately trying to climb the ladder as quickly as I could. And career progression became my measure of success. And, you know, the reason I think that that is quite common amongst LGBTQ plus people, um, and I don't for a moment suggest it's universal. So apologies if you're listening, you think that doesn't reflect me. I, I do know that it's just something that seems to come up quite a lot in conversations I have. The, the, the reason I think it's quite common is When you know that you're different and you have reason to believe that life is going to be harder for you, if you stare directly at that difference and articulate it to other people, you compensate. You know, if you think that people in life or or wider society aren't going to see you positively when they know who you really are, uh, you find ways other than that to demonstrate your worth. And, And mine was academic and professional. For other people, it might be through sports or art. Or, or whatever you've got a talent in, and you go hard, you know, often in a way that makes you miserable, if I'm, if I'm really honest about mm. it. And when I finally came out, everything changed, you know, because although it, it wasn't easy, and I'm not going to suggest that I had universally positive reactions, because it, as much as I do believe it gets better, there's often some, some little bumps in the road to, to get there. The weight that was taken off my shoulders gave me a, a much more balanced perspective on my professional life as well. I wasn't less driven. I was just able to focus my drive in a way that helped me to keep achieving without sacrificing a whole load of my personal life uh, or making me a kind of irritatingly careerist person to my colleagues. Um, I was just much more relaxed into it because I wasn't carrying this big secret around. And it also freed me up to really explore who I really was in a much more um, sort of open way. So to come back to your question about why being out and proud is really important to me now you know, when I was in the closet, there weren't many visible, successful queer leaders in my life. And it made me think that that was a signal that being part of this community would hold me back if if everyone knew. Mm. So I bottled it up for a, an unhealthy amount of time, if I'm honest. And, and the truth is, though, when I came out, everything did get better, actually, um, not just personally, but professionally as well. And, and I hope that being open about who I am in places like this podcast might just reach one or two other people wrestling with their identity maybe a few years earlier than than me and maybe just reassure them a little bit that it's not a binary choice between personal honesty and professional success that the first will help the the second happen so so yeah go for it you know it's backed up by the stats that we know that uh, and I think I, I can only refer to a, it was a Vodafone uh, survey that was done and I think it was done in perhaps in 2019 so it's still you know it's quite old but the fact that 48% of people feel uncomfortable coming out of the closet or they go back into the closet when they start their first sort of big job 
And and I think it is it's really important to talk about it. And there are times where I sort of think, God, am I just going on and on about it too much? But actually, I don't think you can go on about it too much because if, uh, as you say, if it means that people can feel like that release, because there's a lot of effort that goes into hiding yourself, whether it's, you know, hiding uh, the, the, the pronouns you use or uh, your, you know, you don't want to gender your partner, for example, there's a lot of mental effort that goes into being in the closet. So I, I guess if we can perhaps change the industry so that more people feel that they can be themselves, it will actually release that burden. And just think of all of that time they can spend on being creative or being amazing leaders mm-hmm. or being great, great at work. So Absolutely, because it's exhausting. And like you end up going down one or two paths. Either you you end up leading this double life for a period, if you're, if you're sort of living your life as an out person in your, your personal life, but professionally trying to avoid it be, be, you know, being known by anyone, that's incredibly hard. Or in my experience, I just boxed it up and really didn't, didn't explore it in my yeah. personal life either. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of closing myself down to the reality of who I was, which was exhausting in, in a whole other different way. And I look at it as, as, as quite a lot of wasted time. So it's just not something to be recommended for anyone and I know exactly what you mean about oh god we're all just banging on about this a little bit too much but look the reality is as an LGBTQ plus person you have to come out multiple times a day yeah because the world and society tells you that you're a deviation from the norm and so the you're gonna have to be the one to clarify that Mm -hmm. at any given time there are lots of small ways in which you have to do that and so I guess my guidance is actually the quicker that you can sort of jump through that hoop and it's really unfair that we have to jump through that hoop but ultimately society dictates that we do. And the quicker you can start living as, as who you really are in all facets of your life. I know it's hard. I'm not suggesting that every work culture is going to be as accepting as another, but honestly, it will get better uh, from, from doing that in a myriad of, of ways. Yeah. I find it very useful being able to sort of mention my girlfriend kind of quite quickly in conversations, sort of out myself Um I also have to out the fact that she's a lawyer as well, but uh, she, she, is one, she is one of the interesting lawyers. <laughs> she's actually going to kill me if I don't defend her honour on the podcast. <laughs> so I want to come back to Little Moons, and I know that it went viral on TikTok. And I, I also know because when we first met, we were at a conference and you were sort of talking about that. So it would be great if you could just go into a bit more detail about any aspect of that situation that you want to talk about, because I've seen you do like a massive talk on it. So we could have like a whole hour on, on just TikTok uh, and little moons going viral, but perhaps if you could share some of the, um, uh, the experience of that. I'll give a little pricey for what happens for anyone who's not familiar um, and where little moons is now. uh, And I'll, I'll, I'll sort of try and bring it back into some of the stuff I was talking about earlier. So for those who aren't familiar with little moons, little moons are, are mochi ice cream. So they are essentially these sort of little bite-sized balls of artisan gelato wrapped in a soft, sweet, uh, sort of delicate rice dough. Oh, my mouth's watering. (laughs) (laughs) You have to try them, Wendy. (laughs) I have. No, no. You know where I discovered them? In my own freezer. Oh, really? Who put them there? My son and his girlfriend were living here at the time and they were obsessed. So I quickly joined them. TikTok (laughs) audience. Young people, particularly teenagers, are the Trojan horse that are getting us into freezers up in the country. <laughs> I'm incredibly grateful for them. But artisan gelato wrapped in a soft, sweet dough. Mochi dough is is a staple in, in Japan and in terms of culture. So it's 
but often filled with a red bean paste. So it's a kind of savory sweet thing. Ice cream is a kind of westernized um, fusion of the two things. But they're, they're sort of a thoroughly modern concoction. You know, I always think about it as while every other category in the grocery aisle tends to have been innovating like crazy in the last 20 years to frankly steal each other's lunch and get into other occasions, launch new formats, launch new packs, all that kind of thing. Ice cream has kind of been stuck. It's been stuck in, you know, if you want your ice cream in a tub or you want your ice cream on a stick, you're in luck. <laughs> but beyond that, there is nothing else happening. And Little Moons have come along and basically pioneered this snacking category within ice cream that are bite-sized, portion-controlled, because they're portion-controlled, they're calorie-controlled, but they are incredibly high quality um, and delicious, so you're not compromising there. It's not a low-calorie thing in that sense. So that's what they are. Business is actually about 10 years old, and, and what happened, they were founded by founders Howard and Vivian Wong, um, uh, brother and sister duo. So they'd be building this business over 10 years, and then uh, the early part of last year, Little Moons went viral on TikTok. And didn't just go viral in a small way. We, over the course of about a month, got up to about 500 million views from an entirely organic thing that was consumer-driven. Um, sales were up about 2,000%. They became this kind of must-get uh, treat of the summer where there was no product on the shelves because no one is set up to suddenly increase manufacture by 2,000% overnight, so we couldn't make enough of the things. So there were just gaps on the shelves everywhere. People were then filming themselves on TikTok, trying to find Little Moons, going from store to store in the middle of lockdown. So bearing in mind, the only place you could go was grocery shopping. So people were literally entertaining themselves, just trying to find Little Moons, going on the hunt from store to store, looking for them. And if they found them, filming themselves, eating them uh, in their cars and ideally rating them 10 out of 10. <laughs> so we were kind of the the original poster child of TikTok at a point when TikTok was was really going out of the bang in, in the UK in particular. And it was this incredible perfect storm of lockdown conditions making everyone miserable and constraining what they could do. TikTok providing a, a big burst of entertainment. Little Moon's this, this product that is inherently very playful and entertaining and visually distinctive and functionally different. So intriguing enough that myself. And then this kind of nice blend between TikTok is ultimately there to give you a little smile. At Little Moons, we talk about them giving you a little lift that sparks positivity. It's a really nice um, blend. That virality just uh, you know, absolutely caught on. And as a result, we're now pretty much everywhere. We're in every you know, grocery, multiple, we're in pretty much every store. And, and we added more value to the ice cream category than any other brand last year. We just won the, gross, the Grocer's Food Brand of the Year. So it's been an incredible year um, for the business. Bringing it back to what I was talking about earlier, though, when I talked about my sort of personal blend of rigor and, and creativity and instinct, um, I think the TikTok thing is a really good example of that because actually at the point when it happened, I was sort of in the depth of the rigor bit of me. You know, I'd, I'd been building a marketing plan that was rooted in a whole load of empirical evidence. I'd been doing my little roadshow around all of the various stakeholders to persuade everyone of the value of marketing investment and that you know, things like there was a, there's a ton of empirical evidence of the return it's going to give you that often that return isn't just sales uplift. It's about price effects or it's about in insurance for heavy weather or that kind of, you know, all of those sort of things that just made marketing look like a very sensible and robust business decision like any other capital investment, frankly, you know, when you treat it like that in a PL. And then obviously you go viral. It is all kind of out the window and something like, well, I wasn't expecting that, but I'm going to take advantage of that as best I possibly can. But if we hadn't been leaning into TikTok at that point and 
you know, I had someone on my team who absolutely loved the platform and she had complete autonomy to just be doing what she wanted and she was just very good at it. So she was doing all the right stuff on TikTok and we were well suited to it and it all kicked off. And I'm so grateful for that. But then equally, I'm so grateful that we've done all the legwork to make everyone believe in marketing because it could have been so easy after that for the business to turn around to me and go, why would I need to spend millions of pounds on marketing when I, you can just go viral whenever you want, Ross? Yeah. But they didn't do that. They absolutely saw it as this incredibly fortunate thing that happened to us that we needed to capitalize on by investing appropriately in marketing. And that's why we did our first TV ads last year, why we did our first outdoor campaigns, why we did a mural in Camden and various other things that ultimately required investment, but that gave the business the momentum that is now paying dividends as is so often the case with marketing investment you know a year or two years down the line and i think why i love it so much um from our point of view is it's that real focus on community and fans and very much the kind of organic and fan driven uh, engagement on tiktok for example so yeah i'm a big big fan of of you being the poster child for that <laughs> I, need, I need to tell you our fans are the most incredible people and i was reminded of this the other week so we recently did an interactive billboard in central london where we basically brought one of our billboards to life real hands reaching out of it and giving out little moons and merch and all that kind of thing and it was sort of designed as a bit of a pr thing and sort of a sampling opportunity it's a bit about social buzz it's just one of those good things to do that you knew good things would come off even if it was doing multiple things at once but the thing that really struck me was the lengths that our fans go to to engage with the brand mm. so we had people who arrived at 6 a.m even though they knew it didn't start until 8 30 a.m just because they wanted the merch i then got a letter from a 12 year old girl in belfast who had come over with her mum um for the the whole event mainly to say how much she enjoyed it and to ask me when more flavors were going to be available in Northern Ireland. So our fans go to great lengths and they're really valuable to us because like, of course, there's all the Byron Sharp stuff that tells you it's your light buyers who are going to grow the business and they are absolutely critical. But actually your fans are often the people who make you the word of mouth hit and sustain mm. you um, as, as that growth comes. So we look back on all of the things that we've done as a business before my time, as well as when I've been here from our pop-up stores at Selfridges in Westfield um, to the ice cream truck tour we did last year, to even the Luna Cinema partnership we're doing now, all of which are relatively um, modest in terms of reach, but are really brilliant at, at, at getting you goodwill with people who are going to talk to other people and then who will then talk to other people. And hopefully we'll buy some packs and put them in a freezer for, for other people in the household to discover. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. I think I may, might need to talk to you offline about a fan challenge because I, I argue that... Um, the Dr. Pepper fans that we work with and the Oreo fans are equally uh, excitable. So maybe we need a, like a fan challenge. At some fan point. Off. <laughs> Absolutely love it. <laughs> so I'd love to ask you, what are you most proud of uh, either inside or outside work over the years? So honestly, I, th I think it, it is a bit of a personal one, uh, but it's talking about the out and proud thing there. I, I'm, I'm most proud I've managed to reconcile in my head being a gay man and being a successful marketer because I found that really difficult, I'm being honest, for, for 10 years of, of uh, my professional career. It does sound ridiculous, but there were honestly times when I thought the two were mutually exclusive and it made me extremely unhappy. And, and getting to that place has unlocked happier me in my personal life and in my, my professional life. It's made me a lot less worried about what people think of me a lot more philosophical when I face setbacks. It makes me a lot more 
resilient. And, you know, even though I experience anxiety like everyone does, because I do feel like it, it's part of the modern conditions, such as the widespread mental health mm-hmm. challenge that it feels like our whole country is facing right now. But I'm not battling demons in the way that I, I was in my 20s. And so the whole thing is immeasurably more manageable as a, as a result of that. So yeah, reconciling those two things, of course, like I've done lots of things in my career that I look back on with fondness and some great ads and some terrible ads and and some people who I, I've been lucky enough to work with who I'm so incredibly proud of and, and all that. They're all so important to me. But yeah, on a, on a personal level, the realization that I could be who I really am and still be really successful, in fact, because of who I am, not in spite of who I am, has been pretty transformative for me. Fantastic. Thank you. And I think before we move on to the um, slightly more quick fire, I just have one more, which is, can you talk about your focus for the next couple of years and perhaps what's exciting you in the industry? So I think, you know, um, my focus now is making Little Moons the kind of category phenomenon that people write case studies about for years to come. Mm. I know that sounds incredibly arrogant. No, I love it. (laughs) Gotta aim big. And and I, I just honestly believe we've got this incredible transformative product and brand on our hands in a category that's been static for too long. And that's just hugely exciting. I, you know, I've, I've worked on brands and products in the past where you, you really have to dig deep to get excited because you feel like you're doing more of the same or managing you're managing staying still. And, and I don't love, the, I don't thrive on, on that. I love either big growth challenges or big turnaround challenges. And I just think we've got this really exciting growth challenge um, uh, ahead of us. And um, so I'm really excited about that. I am personally, because I'm choosing to see this as an opportunity rather than a huge challenge, quite excited about the HFSS legislation and and some of the stuff that's happening in the category. For those who don't know, HFSS stands for high fat salt sugar products. The government are bringing in regulations to restrict promotional space, promotional mechanics, advertising on products like that. I don't agree with everything in the way that they're doing it, but I ultimately see the societal goals that they're trying to achieve. And I tend to see this as opportunity because you know, a constraint can be incredibly helpful in making you think differently and shaking you up out of your your usual pattern of what you do year in, year out. And working for a business that's more agile and entrepreneurial, I feel really confident we're going to do really well out of that challenge, actually, because we'll we'll be able to act on our feet and, and do things a little bit quicker than some of our more behemoth-like uh, competitors, mm-hmm. shall we, we say, but but we'll see. And then on a personal level, I'm getting married in a couple of months. So um, starting a life I didn't really think I'd have when I was younger is pretty exciting. And, and I'm at that point in the project management of the whole thing that I just want it to be over. Now. So <laughs> well, I'm excited about the aftermath. Yeah. <laughs> That's lovely. So we're going to move on to the, the, the final section of the podcast now. So I was going to say where we get a little bit more personal, but actually I feel like we've probably achieved that bit already. So... Tell us about your idea of a perfect weekend and if you have any guilty pleasures. So my favourite thing in the world is an early morning walk in Walpole Park in Ealing uh, with my partner Ricky and our, and our dog Maggie uh, and stopping off at a cafe called Pulp that we are both weirdly obsessed with <laughs> and just chatting away about everything and nothing and getting annoyed that Maggie's recall is terrible. So I, I, I appreciate that's incredibly middle-aged. There isn't a huge amount to feel guilty about in there absolutely not. maybe the maybe the pastries that i probably consume a few too many of and that kind of thing but i, I do think and particularly i'm going to talk a bit lockdown dog walking was my my savior so i'm i'm very very grateful for that and i actually do i'm at that stage where i look forward to sunday mornings and doing what i just said which is crazy no that's nice it's nice it's not a chore 
I might be making a massive assumption here, Ross, based on your accent, possibly your name. <laughs> Are there any Scottish delicacies that you miss? How dare you know? You're quite right. <laughs> I, I am indeed from Edinburgh. I am a complete cliche. So I kid you not, my fridge has an entire shelf dedicated to Iron Brew. Um, I get it from Ocado. It's the only place you can get it. I'm probably on at least one can a day. I, I do think it's my touchstone for um, uh, for Scotland. The thing I really miss that I can't get down here is chippy sauce from Edinburgh. And anyone from Scotland will know this, but there are big dividing lines in Scotland from area to area as to what you'll get when you're offered salt and sauce in any different part of Scotland. You will not get the same thing. So, so very specifically chippy sauce in, in Edinburgh, kind of a blend of brown sauce and vinegar. You can buy it by the Iron Brew bottle in, in fish and chip shops and <laughs> must be tried to be believed. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely miss that. And I, I do my best to make sure I will have a fish supper every time that I'm back up. In Quite right. And that was one thing when I, because I lived in London for 10 years and it was stovies for me. Couldn't get yeah, stovies get anywhere. But. <laughs> <laughs> so over to you, Tamara. Yeah. Do you have a bucket list and what's still on it? So I try not to have one only because I am the kind of personality that's prone to obsess about achievement, as you probably <laughs> guessed from certain things that I've said in this, uh, this conversation. However, I really do want to do a Grand Designs-esque property project at some point in my life. Nice. I do spend my downtime on the tube, you aimlessly browsing right move um, and sending you know, derelict properties to my partner who needs to remind me that we don't have the money and the resources or the time to, to do any of this. Apart from that, though. <laughs> well, uh, so I, I do, you know, kind of at some point, I, I'm kind of obsessed with like transforming disused and derelict buildings into things that are of use mm. to society at some point. So I, w- I would love to do it somehow. I mean, I'm not really interesting. When I was a kid, I wasn't really that practical a person, didn't really understand DIY. But as I've, I've grown up, I've become increasingly self-sufficient, taught myself lots more things via YouTube. I still haven't really mastered plumbing, but I'm sort of determined to get there in the end. So I think if marketing ever turns out not to be the thing for me, then going and learning a few trades and, and getting into that kind of property development would be something I'd love to do. And was that kind of one of the sort of things that you picked up during lockdown? Are there any other habits that you've got from lockdown? A little bit in lockdown. I did. I mean, honestly, when you're on gardening leave in lockdown, so I had six months of um, literally not being able to work. So, so you were structuring your time talking to headhunters and and yeah. practicing for interviews and stuff. And the rest of the time, I was either learning how to um, fit out the downstairs loo or uh, dog walking. And you know, the thing that saved me was going on walks with our old dog William, who who sadly passed away last year having the, the structure of walking him twice a day, sticking a podcast in your ears, marching around Ealing's parks became really, really important to my mental health. And it's it's something I'm really protective over now, actually, because I'm, I'm back in a fairly stressful job. But any days that I'm fortunate enough to work from home, I've got an hour marked out in my diary in the middle of the day that I kind of know that even if I wanted to take the time back for meetings, Maggie, the dog that I, I'm now lucky enough to have, would literally be sitting next to me whining and scratching at my leg demanding a walk at that time so so as much as it's for her it's for me as well to be honest I think it's it's a real saving grace and I mean I could talk about dog ownership for hours which I promise not to but what I will say is if you're thinking about it and you're in your 20s don't do it because you basically have to give up spontaneous fun but if you're <laughs> in your 30s 
it is brilliant because it gives you a fantastic excuse to be as middle-aged as you actually want to be <laughs> and do all the things that are actually good for your well-being. So yeah, definitely get a talk when you've got to that age where you, you don't want to be in the club anymore. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for coming and joining us. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to sort of answer? Or if you've got any closing thoughts, I'm going to give the, the platform over to you. No, look, I, I would just say it's been such a privilege being asked to come on and talk to you both and and in particular to be given the opportunity to talk about being open about my identity and, and how that's helped me be better at work and, and not just life. Because I do think one of the, you know, the LGBTQ people shouldn't have to come out and be really open and loud about this um, because society shouldn't force that. But that's the reality of what we live in. And I'm very conscious that hopefully the more that particularly senior people in business can come out and talk publicly about their struggles, but how ultimately them being open and honest and bringing their full selves to work has been of of benefit to their careers, not just to their personal life. Hopefully we'll we'll create a better situation for the the 21 year olds just coming into the workplace for the first time and, and having to wrestle with that stuff now. So I'm really privileged. I really hope that it's helped even one or two people listening at home. So yeah, thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.